So 30-ish years after Jesus' resurrection, Christians are facing persecution for their faith. They're scattered all around the known world at that time. And Peter is writing to them to comfort them and to encourage them to stay strong. And Anne spoke last week and she said that the people that, people, that Peter was writing to would have understood exactly what he was saying. So when he said things like, uh, being, when he said that being holy meant they were set apart, meant that they were different, and uh, that they weren't be, to be surprised if people didn't like them, they st- understood exactly what he meant because they were living it. Everything he said was in their experience. And I got to wondering, how can we today really understand what Peter's saying if we haven't experienced it? Well, what Peter wrote really wasn't a sugar-coated account of what being a Christian was like. It was real and raw stuff. Yes, giving encouragement and telling glorious truth, but also telling these first century Christians what to expect. So he gave them instructions of how they were to live. The thing is, it didn't put them off. They'd given their lives to Jesus and they weren't about to change. They weren't about to go back. And furthermore, Peter's instructions were followed. Well, how do I know that? Well, we've got proof. A hundred years on, a man called Diognetus uh, received a letter from a person who just calls themselves Mathetes, which in Greek just means a disciple. We don't know who these two men were, but what was written is relevant. So the author wrote this about second century Christians. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws while all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, but they make many rich. They lack everything, but yet they overflow with everything. They are dishonoured, and yet in their very dishonour, they're glorified. They are spoken ill of, and yet justified. They are reviled, but blessed. They insult, and yet pay the insult with honour. They they do good, and yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished... They rejoice as if raised from the dead. 
They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. It was a tough life. But for all those hardships and persecution, the church was flourishing. That's then. Let's compare with that with today. And a chirpy report published in May of this year about the current position of the church in the UK. I quote, The Baptists and Brethren should last until the end of the century. Their decline is slow, and there is hope they could return to growth if they make conversions a priority. The Church of England and Catholics should last until the second half of the century. However, they need to take urgent action now. They should encourage members to make new disciples who can replicate themselves. And praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit wouldn't go amiss either. Sadly, the immediate future looks bleak for the Church of Scotland, Church of Wales and Methodists. They seriously need to ask themselves how they have gotten themselves in such a situation where extinction is less than 30 years away. What is wrong with their beliefs and practices that's stopping them from making converts? Well, it's a bit depressing reading. And when we hear that, do we just read them? We're a bit shocked and think that's a shame and what can I do about it? Or does it make us determine that it's not going to happen on our watch? I believe um, that God has a plan to galvanize us into action. And it's something that's happening right here in our church at Christchurch. At CBCB, we have a growing Iranian part of our congregation. And listening to some of their stories is just like being transported back into Peter's time in history. They are forced to flee from persecution for their faith. And it's like you would be arrested and imprisoned and put to death, no joke. They have to walk or they choose to walk hundreds of miles to flee from that persecution through different countries. They end up on inflatable boats in the English Channel that sink and they face drowning unless a boat is around that can rescue them. The fortunate survive, the less fortunate just don't. For them, these words of Peter's are a living reality and the courage and bravery they show are far from the stories we hear um, that the media report that they're only here for benefits. If we let them in, we won't have enough for ourselves. They just want all our jobs. 
we can all too easily believe that. But the vast majority of those who make it to our shores have lived through horrors we can't even imagine. Even speaking to them is a privilege. I spoke to a lady last week who I will call sister because actually if I gave her real name, not only may she be in danger, but her family still in Iran Iran would be as well. So I'm going to call her sister to respect her privacy. And actually her story is pretty horrific. But her love for Jesus shines out from her. And she has more courage in her little finger than I have in my entire body. She is simply amazing. And it's one Peter come to life today right here in our own church. And it's plain that through that passage and through these wonderful people we have in our congregation that God is showing us that we need to uh, live differently and with a purpose. And Peter tells us what that purpose is. In verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And he goes on that once you weren't a people, now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, our purpose is to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into light and to tell others the difference he has made in our lives. So church, what do we need to do? Well, we need to herald 1 Peter as a book for today and to follow his teaching. We need to start believing Peter when he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, that you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Do we believe that we are living stones, that our churches are living places, or not. Do we believe that we are just, uh, you know, are we just a stone that rolls over from time to time, just content to be part of something, or 
Are we living, vibrant, sparkly stones that cry out with the good news of Jesus, knowing that we will never be ashamed because that's what Peter says. If we were living up to our purpose on screen, would our churches be in decline? The answer to that is no. But there's another question. What do Christians in Peter's time, in Diognetus' time, and our lovely Iranian Christians understand that we don't? They understand that they are chosen. And what does it mean? Well, being chosen means that God has chosen us as his people and that he knows really just one thing. And that thing is that he loves us and his greatest desire is that we would choose him as well. It's not a one-way choosing. It's a mutual choosing. He chooses us but waits for us to choose him. When we accept God's choosing of us through accepting his son Jesus died for us, then something extraordinary happens. Our name gets engraved on the palm of God's hand, on Jesus' heart and in the Lamb's book of life, Jesus' book of life. We become his and he becomes ours. And in heaven, it is such a big deal that angels party in celebration. One with him, we can't die. We get to spend eternity with him. Our finite lives become infinite. And as a result of this mutual choosing, we become new creations. Everything we did wrong gets forgiven and forgotten, and we are washed clean. We get new identities, and we get to become part of the family of God. And that's worth worth sharing and declaring his praises about. So, If everything that Peter says is true, and it is, therefore, the future of the church really should be assured. But it's not. Why? Well, let me demonstrate. The more eagle-eyed of you will notice that there is a line of tape on the stage. And you might have wondered what it's doing there. On the other hand, you might not have even noticed it. But... All is about to be revealed. This side of the line is life without Jesus. This side of the line is life with Jesus. And please notice the side of the line I am preaching from, life with Jesus. So we live our lives and at some point we recognize and we choose, that we choose to know that Jesus has died for us, and uh, we say sorry and repent of all our sins, 
And we make the choice to follow Jesus. And at that point, we move from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of heaven. From our old way of life into our new way of life. And we stop becoming citizens of the world and become citizens of heaven. Or the kingdom of heaven. Plenty of praises to be declared so far. We have been called from the darkness of the world into this wonderful light. Well, as Christians, we've got an enemy, Satan. And if he can convince us that our new identity doesn't cancel out our old one, our effectiveness as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven will be limited. Hurts and patterns of the world can come with us. And we simply don't know or recognize who we are in, our ki- in the new kingdom. Our identity has changed and we don't recognize the fullness of that. So using me as an example, I didn't have a good childhood. And my experiences of abuse meant that I was ashamed of who I was. There was no point speaking out because I didn't have anything important to say. Basically, I was a failure. And it sounds melodramatic, but that's really what I thought. So when I gave my life to Jesus, I knew I felt different, and it was amazing. But who's going to listen to that? Because I'm the shameful failure of a person. And if I said something... No one's going to take any notice because what I said would be rubbish. I didn't like who I was, so why would anybody else? And why would I shout about that? Why would I declare that? So what had happened? Well, although I'd changed my citizenship from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of heaven, it was like I stayed as close to the line as possible. All the joys of the kingdom of heaven were there for me, but my new identity was hindered by my life experiences. Well, As I began to let Jesus in more and more and listen to his Holy Spirit rather than the inner voice of the enemy, who basically was constantly trying to reinforce my uselessness, the person you see today began to emerge and my kingdom of heaven identity began to take dominance. I stopped hugging that line and I fully accepted that I am a new creation and I will and I do speak about it. I went from being a nobody to being a somebody. Jesus had been telling me that all the time, but because of my previous life experiences, I couldn't receive it. The biggest battle the church faces today is that as believers, 
we can be stopped for fulfilling our purposes in verse 9 by past hurts. And it's something that the Christians in Peter's time and those a hundred years later didn't seem to face. It's something that our Iranians don't face. Why? Well, the enemy has tried to stop them in different ways. Because if you're being persecuted and actually in fear of your life, you're probably not going to be concerned about your past because you're fighting to stay alive in your present. Where there isn't that persecution, the enemy tries to stop us a different way. He tries to get us to persecute ourselves. What can we do about it? Well, it's easy to say that we need to recognize this and operate in our new identity. See, I don't believe for one moment that I'm alone in my experiences. And the single biggest thing was, uh, that helped me was recognizing who I am, who Jesus says I am, recognizing my identity. And it's all right to declare that we are wonderful, we are cherished, we are rejoiced about, because that's what it said, or that's what it says in the Bible. And on screen is the image of the word cloud that you were all given as you came in. And it contains words like God's handiwork, set free, justified, loved by God. And those words make up a fraction of the characteristics of our identity as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. We can break free from our old identity and refuse to listen to the truth of the enemy by declaring the truth of of who we are every day. It is that easy. The enemy doesn't want us to believe that, but it's the truth. So what we can do is look at that word cloud each day and declare out a couple of the words and thank Jesus. So it would look something like this, saying out loud, I decree that I have left my old identity behind and I am marked by God's power and that I am being transformed. Thank you, Jesus. Don't have to stick to the word cloud. We can, there's plenty of other truths written in the Bible. We can declare those as well. And doing this stuff daily has an effect on how we see ourselves. We begin to believe it. And when we believe it, we can tell others about it. As a child, if we are told we are useless, stupid, and that we'll never amount to anything. 
If we're told that each day, we would, be, we would grow up believing that of ourselves. That's what the enemy tries to do. If, though, we are told we are amazing, adored, and that what we do really matters, we'll begin to believe that. That's what God believes of us. When we declare out loud, we are saying and declaring who we are. We are saying that the past has not got a hold of us and that we are breaking free. And I'm coming into land, but we are saying that we are God's chosen ones and we have a new identity. We have the historical proof that with a new identity, the church can grow and grow exponentially despite persecution in Peter's time. We have that first-hand account of how a new identity was countercultural, countercultural, noticeable and infectious in Diognetus' time. And I believe that God has given us the gift of our lovely Iranians to stir us into action, to stand on the promises of God like they have learned to do and embrace our identity as those who know that we are a chosen people. So, let's show that statistics of declining numbers cannot stand up to a church who knows it's chosen and declares that. So, if you're with me, I'm proposing that we start, we start today and we're going to declare something together. So let's, let's stand, let's jump to our feet. And we're, gonna, we're going to uh, declare with gusto, with enthusiasm, this. We declare we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Church, that's the counter-offensive that defeats the enemy. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the, that prophetic book of Peter that actually uh, echoes through the ages. Thank you for all we can learn for it, from it. Father, thank you that you really have given the, the, um, the offensive, the new offensive to the church. And I pray that as a church, we stand on, the, on your promises and in declaring that we are a chosen people, We battle, we battle and, and don't believe the lies of the enemy because we declare once and for all, we are chosen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.